Let's open them up to Genesis chapter 25. And uh, we're not going to read over the verses because there's quite a bit to go over. But uh, um, thus far in Genesis, let's discuss that. So far in Genesis, we're at the point when Abraham has passed away. Um, last week we saw that he lived for the duration of his life. He had multiple sons, and ultimately it was Isaac, though, who was going to receive the promise of the inheritance and all these things. Um, likewise, we found out about Ishmael and his genealogy and, and recognized that he too was blessed just as God promised that he would bless him. Now today, uh, we start the Toledo of uh, Isaac, and so it's going to be his story, or we'll see how much of it is actually his immediately, but we'll see. Anyway, uh, let's start with verse 19. These are the, are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If, this, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. With the passing of Abraham, the torch officially is given over to his son Isaac. We find his Taladot beginning as any other. These are the generations of Isaac. As such, the next group of the chapters deal with events as Isaac is the head of the family clan, just as they did with Abraham before him. So Isaac's Taladot begins a little differently by focusing on the fact that Isaac is Abraham's son. Um, we are immediately brought back to the birth of Isaac, which was one of extraordinary circumstances, as Sarah's womb was opened by God to allow Isaac's conception. Thus, with Abraham fathering Isaac, we are reminded of God's faithfulness. We then learn of Rebekah. Again, the Talada is somewhat different than most as we are reminded of where she came from, uh, that she is the daughter of Bethuel, the Araman of Padam Aram, and sister of Laban. That all this information is given now hints at the past, but also hints at the future, as we will find what happens with Laban and in Aram later on in the story. Ultimately, Rebekah becomes Isaac's wife, as we learned from the previous chapters, and uh, there was much love between them, as we found out as well. Yet Rebecca's situation is much like her mother-in-law, Sarah. Just as Sarah was barren, so was Rebecca. Um, as we remember with Sarah, for a woman at the time to be barren had sorrowful ramifications for her personally as well as for the family. For each new child was to care for their parents and carry on the family name and tradition. As it is, though, Isaac intercedes on her behalf, praying that God would open up her womb. The response from God? He does something miraculous for the family again by opening Rebecca's womb just as he had opened Sarah's. Rebecca does in fact conceive. Um, yet the problem arises within her. The pregnancy is very painful. Um, she does not understand why it is so painful. And as such, she struggles to understand the pain she is experiencing, even going so far as to ask if this is even worth it to have children. In her pain, she decides to go to the Lord. 
Scholars note that this usually implies going to a prophet of God. As it is, we're unsure if that is necessarily the case or not. If she went to one of God's unnamed prophets um, or she prayed to God, either way would be the case in the context. It doesn't really make much of a difference. Likewise, in either case, she receives a response. It is an enigmatic statement, actually. How could there be two nations in her womb? How could there be two peoples, plural, uh, who are divided in her womb? How can it be that one will be stronger and the older serve the younger? Um, All of this is very cryptic in its own sense. There's no reference to specific children per se. Instead, there are just these people groups. We know now, we, we who know the story, however, have a minor hint of things. In Hebrew, the word for serve the younger rhymes with the name Jacob, while younger in Hebrew is an alternative name for Esau and Edom. As such, Rebekah, in this moment, may or may not have understood the context, but soon she would find out what the prophetic statement was true and what it was all about. So then verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the pregnancy jumps ahead, and the day of the child's arrival is imminent. But lo and behold, there is not one child but two. Indeed, she was carrying twins the whole time. As such, the prophetic statement may have made more sense to her at this moment than it had at any time previously. We then learn of each child. The first, the older, came out looking red like a hairy cloak. Um, We're unsure if this means that he had red hair or if his skin was reddish. Um, As such, scholars debate it as well as the importance of this. Some have argued that had uh, Esau had red hair, and like those in history, the red hair implies bad. Um, indeed, scholars note that there was superstitions against red-headed people well within to the church age. Um, as in it is Judas, whenever he was painted during the church age uh, early on, was often painted with red hair. Um, sorry, Carissa. Though others note the idea of a ruddy complexion and red hair could lead more toward a heroic concept found in Egypt and Crete and elsewhere. Unfortunately, we're unsure if this is any of this is the case. We're just guessing. Um, but it's interesting to me. Ultimately, we learn that they call his name Esau because of this. The name Esau does not occur anyone, uh, anywhere else in Oriental literature that we found. And as such, most scholars are unsure of its etymology. As such, we can only assume it deals with his hairy, reddish physique. Yet even in this moment, here comes the brother. We notice how the text describes the situation. As Esau comes out, his brother is holding on to that heel. It's almost as though the younger is trying to get ahead of the older. Uh, for this reason, the second born is called Jacob, which means clutching the heel. So as one commentator notes, the story is set. The strife between the children are going to continue outside of the womb, just as it had while it was in the womb. Thus, uh, this section ends by informing us that Isaac is 60 years old when the sons were finally born. All right, so now we're going to jump ahead again. So verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. 
Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. All right. So time flies in the uh, time of Isaac (laughs) quite a bit. We are already seeing the repercussions of the prophecy take place here. As the boys grew up implies such a jump into the future. Immediately we are told of the boys' different personas. Uh, Esau, a skillful hunter, a man of the field. He was active one, the arch hunter type of the, of the family, the individual. Jacob, on the other hand, was dwelling among the tents. We notice how he is described as quiet. The term quiet is interesting as it usually actually means perfect. But as such, it can't mean that in the moral perfection is quite far from Jacob, as we will find out with his brother, uh, which makes sense in context. Um, instead, scholars tend to note it may reflect that he was more self-restrained than his brother, again, which makes sense. We then find the family dynamics. Isaac, he loved his food, and as such, he loved Esau because he was a hunter, and he provided that food. Esau would uh, go and find the meal his father preferred, and as such, Isaac loved Esau because of it. Perhaps this is where the idea came, uh, where uh, like the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I don't know. Maybe that's too far, but it, it makes sense in this context. Yet we also learned Rebecca loved Jacob. Why we're uncertain. Perhaps it is the reality that the prophetic statement had an effect on her. Maybe it was because she stayed more in the tents. Indeed, when we consider Rebecca and her energetic personality, it would have made more sense for her to get along with Esau, who was also energetic, since he seemed to have such that kind of a personality. As such, we're unsure of why Rebecca preferred Jacob. But we do notice from this division uh, comes because of it in the house. We then get an interesting story. Jacob, apparently living in the tents, had spent time learning how to cook. Indeed, one day he was preparing such a stew just as Esau came from the field being exhausted. That he was exhausted implies that he was thirstier rather than famished um, and likely just needed to rest out uh, in the field after hunting or working. Still, he comes in and requests some of the red stew. In the Hebrew, that the stew is red is explicitly implied. As such, it looks like a hearty stew to the brother. It looks as if it would be a stew a man like him would have to have. Indeed, even in the fact that it was stew implies the heartiness of it, the meat. He desired it to settle his exhaustion. In passing, we learn that this is why he is called Edom, uh, which sounds like Esau, which in turn reflects back onto being red. Um, While Esau had been asking for the sake of his exhaustion and desire for food, Jacob's response is curt at best. Sell me your birthright now. There is no request here, nor is it kindly asked to say the least. Uh, We can see the calculating mind of Jacob in this moment. He is purposefully taking advantage of his brother in this situation in order to get ahead. Um, Esau's response is surprising. He simply responds with, Uh, What good is a birthright if he's dead? (laughs) Which is a true statement, I guess. We can be sure he probably wasn't going to die, though. Maybe a little overdramatic on his part, but not in the state of imminent death. Yet he is more than willing to part with his birthright under the circumstances. 
Jacob, again, is very explicit and very calculating. Swear to me now. All the emphasis is on him receiving uh, on what is being sworn to. Despite the obviousness to us, Esau willingly swears it to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. This paves the way for what's going to happen in chapter 27. We then find what occurs. Notice, Jacob gave Esau bread. That was very kind of him. He wasn't asked of that. But we also notice the text says about the stew. It was no longer red stew. Indeed, not hearty at all. Instead, it was lentil stew. Certainly not the kind of stew a man such as Esau would have preferred. As such, the text simply describes Esau's eating, drinking, and leaving. The result, though, is that Esau despised his birthright. Esau seems to be keenly aware of what his brother had just done. He had been duped into trading away his birthright for not much more of anything in return. Jacob had out-calculated his brother, so to speak, and as such, the strife between them certainly continued into the future. All right, so the main point of these verses are to establish everything which will occur while Isaac is the head of the household. We immediately find his wife's story is similar to his mother's and that she is barren. Like Sarah, God intervenes on Rebecca's behalf, and in time she conceives. While in the pregnancy there is too much to bear, and she entreats God concerning it, and is given a prophetic message concerning the pregnancy, dealing primarily with his divine election. She learns what that means when she bore twins, Esau and Jacob. From this, we learn the struggle between the two go well outside the womb, as eventually Jacob swindles Esau out of his firstborn rights uh, for some lentil stew and bread. All right. So this first uh, point, application point, is about election. And I want to warn everyone now, this is one of those heady ones. Um, you You can't discuss election without it being a bit theological. So I apologize. But it's, I think it's in the text, it's there, so we need to discuss it, and that's what we do here. <laughs> we discuss what the text goes. So um, something we have seen repeatedly in Genesis narratives is the concept of election. This is a thought which is something we have a hard time grasping. Um, it is the understanding that God elects some, but not others. That is further, that he divinely appoints some and not others. Whether it is Cain and Abel, um, and then Seth. Noah, Abraham, or Isaac and Ishmael. Um, In all of these accounts, we find God choosing individuals and electing them for his purposes. As it is, we find the same thing when it comes to Jacob and Esau. Consider again the prophetic message given to Rebekah concerning the children in her womb. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger." In this message, we find the blessing of Abraham is going to come not to the older, but to the younger. How do we see this? Well, the older shall serve the younger. In this, we find the reality of divine election. Though Esau would be the firstborn, in the end, God chose Jacob in order to carry the line and to give the blessing to. Now, the question we want to ask is, how can this be? Prior to either of them doing anything, prior to them even taking a breath outside of their mother's womb, prior to them making any choice, we find God already making a choice in their lives. Is that fair? Is it right for God to make such a declaration? How can God, before either of the children are even born, make such a proclamation? 
In this, we enter into the concept of election, predestination, some might even call it. It is a teaching which is hard for many to understand, and because of this, we often either overlook it, or we sweep it under the rug. Or further, we refuse to acknowledge it. Yet it is right before us, prior to their births, their destiny in a way is set by God. Some might find this to be a bit over the top. How can we confirm that this is what is being decreed? Well, consider what we read in Romans 9. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. As we notice, Paul quotes here Malachi 1, 1, and 2, where the prophetic uh, prophet describes the destruction of Edom, who are descendants of Esau. Ultimately, Paul recognizes God's election when it comes to Jacob and Esau. But we notice what Paul recognizes in the fact that God elected Jacob instead of Esau. We receive a revelation concerning God. And that is that God does not elect based upon people's works. Indeed, there are those who believe that election is a product of the fact that God knows what we will do or knows that we would be better good, being good, than others. But the truth is, election doesn't appear to be about how good we are or will be. Instead, it is fully the work of God. He who knows what occurred, what is occurring now, and will occur, chooses who he will bless for his own glory alone. But does this mean that God is unjust? Indeed, this is where the question leads, and Paul answers it when he says, What shall we then say? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and hardens whomever he wills. Again, Paul makes the argument that God is not unjust to have mercy and compassion on whom he will. When we consider the grander repercussions, it is true. If we are all in the mire of sin, then what fault does God have to be compassionate and merciful to whom he will out of the mire? Do those in the mire have any argument, especially if they are in sin, which distorts us so badly as to believe that mire is paradise? Indeed, that is the case with humanity. Sin has broken us to such a degree as to blind us cognitively from knowing God when he is right in front of us. Likewise, it has caused our affections to be misplaced, where we love what we ought to hate and hate what we ought to love. Thus, if God is merciful and compassionate on a few for his own glory, there is no fault on the part of God. Some might not consider the arguments presented enough. So Paul keeps going. We notice he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded to its maker, to what is, what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out 
of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with such much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So what does Paul conclude? God is still God. We are not God. No matter what we may believe about ourselves, no matter what we may believe about humanity and our place in the cosmos, while it is certainly high, it is not God. Only God is God. We are not. We are finite We are broken. We are in need of salvation. God is infinite. God is whole. He is perfect. As such, this raises an interesting question. Does this mean that we have no choice at all? I would argue that that would be going too far. It is not as though we are puppets without any will. We do have will. The problem is, with our will on our own, we would always choose sin over God. That is because of sin. It, again, causes our cognitive abilities to be darkened, and it causes our affections to be turned towards sin, towards self, rather than toward God. But that does not mean we do not have cognitive abilities or affections at all. They are, in fact, still ours. However, salvation belongs to God alone. Because of this, only he can reach out and save us. Only he can bring us out of the mire. Only he can repair our minds and cause our hearts to be turned away from the destructive habits of sin and toward himself, toward what is altogether good and beautiful, all of which he does through his Holy Spirit within us. That's the role of the Holy Spirit is to do these things. As such, when redemption comes into our lives through Christ, it is a complete redemption. It is a redemption which takes all of the broken pieces of us and puts it, begins to put it back together. Through the gospel of Jesus, we finally begin our return to the garden where we experience the peace with God now and forever. Yet it is, not, it is only it is God's initial work. It's his work. We cannot lay any claim upon salvation or redemption. It is God's choice in the matter And if we are chosen, it is by his grace, for his purpose, for his glory alone. Those whom he chooses, he loves as his son Jesus. I suppose this leaves some unanswered questions. Maybe you're thinking, why me? Well, again, it is focused on the grace of God, his mercy, and his glory. If the whole universe has one purpose, which is to glorify its creator... And if we humans in our own choices are called to glorify our creator, then one can assume the reason why you are chosen is because through you God will be most glorified in the end. But this does not mean that you or I are more spiritual or the smartest or the best looking than the person next door. No, this is where humility comes in. For we are told in the New Testament that God loved what was unlovable, and he redeemed the unredeemable. That is us. We are no better than the person in our own sinful natures. In this way, it is entirely possible for the person next door, if redeemed, you know, they could, in their own time, glorify God more than you or I in their own lives. It's possible. 
So what then? Again, we must remember God knows all. As such, he knows every decision that we will make because we still do have free will. He, as well as every decision the next thousand generations will make. He knows exactly who will be saved for his ultimate glory. In this, we are again humbled. Because it is not us who is the center of the universe, but God. Thus, through our actions today, then we can be sure that in the future, God will be more glorified because we are in Christ than if another might, even if they, in their personal lives, could have lived a better life today. Again, these are all very deep discussions. Election is not for the faint of heart. It is a recognition of God's sovereignty over humanity, and as such, it is our responsibility to recognize he alone is sovereign. He alone is king. He alone is supreme and above all. As such, we praise his mighty name, for in him we find grace, we find peace, we find mercy and love beyond all measure and understanding. Likewise, it gives us great humility recognizing that it isn't because we are so great personally. It is because he is so great. It also gives us hope. You nor I know who is elected. That means everyone in Westfield could be. There is no one too sinful. There is no one too far gone from the potential of salvation in Christ because Christ is greater than they, just as he is greater than us. Also, it gives us incredible peace because we know all the work is on God's part. It isn't that we have to be more persuasive, nor do we have to look back and think, ah, if only I had said this to this person, they would be saved today. Meanwhile, God says, I save the person, you don't. All God requires of us is to be faithful in this life. He does the work of salvation. We proclaim the gospel. We go where we are commanded to go, and we do what we're commanded to do. But we also trust in him to accomplish this great salvation. Thus it comes in first full circle. God uses us as a king, a servant would, for his glory. And in this way we get to partake of the glory and his work. We partake when we proclaim the gospel with our mouths. We partake when we use our intellects, our cognitive abilities that are now being fixed by the Holy Spirit to provide a reason for the hope that is within us. We partake when he seizes our affections to show his love to us in the world. Thus the redemption is complete. And people see the complete redemption and it is all for his glory. Thus we proclaim first for his glory. We learn and educate ourselves in the word and with theology and doctrines for his glory. We seek him in tears of joy and sorrow for his glory. He initiates and begins it all through our salvation when he takes us out of the mire. All in all, we should be thankful for this doctrine. For this doctrine of election does not take away our freedom. Instead, it gives us freedom in Christ. Where once our freedom was bound to sin without escape, Christ comes and unshackles us. And he breaks loose our bondage of the will to sin so that we have freedom to follow our God as he deserves to be followed because he is worthy. As such, do not be afraid of this doctrine. Instead, rejoice over it. 
For if God's election were not the case, then we would all still be in the pit, trying to get out ourselves. As it is, God does the work. He reaches down. He lifts us up. And we are then able to live fully for his glory. Seek this, then, to live as one who owes God everything. Because in the end, this is the case. We owe God everything. From the breath we breathe to the salvation we find in Christ, he deserves us all. Let's, not, let's then give him all of who we are. All right. So along with election now, we also have this, this issue with Esau, don't we? Um, when we read the text, we could almost feel sorry for Esau. We can wonder about his being misled by his brother. But we want to be cautious. For while it may be the case that we are to feel sympathetic toward Esau, he also gives us a great and clear warning when it comes to how we live. Indeed, consider how easily he was willing to separate what was rightfully his. We notice it, do we not? For some food, he was willing to let go of his birthright as the firstborn. For his desire of the flesh, he was willing to trade it all for his appetite. Tell me, is this any different than the story of humanity thus far? Indeed, when we consider Adam and Eve in the garden, were they not willing to do the exact same thing? Take, eat of the fruit, it will give you X, Y, and Z. All the things she desired with her flesh would be hers if she just ate. Every desire of the flesh would be his if he ate. The same goes with Esau. Just by seeking the desires of his flesh, he ultimately succumbs to losing so much. In the book of Hebrews, we receive a warning against Esau. Consider what we read from Hebrews 12. See to it that none of, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, one root, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here we see a parallel with Esau and our sinful desires. Esau is the warning for us. Do not throw away the grace of God for this world. Do not throw away what is right in front of you for passions and lusts of the flesh. Do not throw away what is holy, what is pure, what is the grace of God itself by living in sin. We are warned here. While election belongs to God, it is true, this does not negate our responsibility. For again, as we have seen, salvation belongs to God, but our actions and our choices matter. Let us take warning for those who are of God will take warning from these verses that those who belong to Christ will be ones who repent today, will be the ones who seek to honor God now, will be the ones who give themselves completely over to God this second, this moment. Along with this individual aspect of losing our birthright by giving ourselves over to sin, there's also a corporate aspect. Let us as a group, as a community, as a church family, not lose sight of the gospel of Jesus. Let us not be willing to sell grace and peace we have with God for any potential growth or profit. Our call is not to grow things. Our call is to plant, to water, to prune. But it is God, God alone, who provides the growth. There are so many who would rather take the easy way out in regards to their lives as well as ministry. 
There are so many who would rather water down teaching, who would rather claim a different truth than the gospel. Why? Because it is far easier to burning ears, or as Mike read earlier, to tickling ears, to give people exactly what they want. It is far easier for us to accept a teaching or a doctrine which is all about them and their benefit than to accept a doctrine of teaching which says it's all about God. It is far easier to accept that which is easy, like the prosperity gospel, than accept what is harder, which is the real gospel of Jesus, and it's all for his glory. We cannot be misled. We must be cautious. There are times when our hearts would rather turn like Esau. Don't let it. There are times when we would rather have all we can from this life now and focus only on filling our desires of the flesh here and now. Don't do it. We are capable of beginning to put on the eternal. By walking in step with the Spirit, we begin to put on the imperishable, walking in love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, and understanding. When we do this, when we find that which is forever, we find it here. This is what we should strive for. This is what we should live for, because for eternity upon eternity, these are the things which last to the glory of God. Some people might say, but pastor, by being faithful in these ways, we see our congregations aren't growing. People aren't listening. Shouldn't we make it easier for people? Shouldn't we focus on them to get them into the doors? No. This is like Esau, willing to eat the lentil soup and trade the birthright. Because we are trying to focus on the here and now rather than eternity. So instead of being like Esau, I will tell you, be like Isaac and Rebekah. While Isaac and Rebekah did not help the situation by playing favorites, we do learn something of them concerning their steadfastness. Notice, Isaac prayed and interceded for Rebekah, and she held on to hope for 20 years. He was 40 when he married Rebekah, and they did not have boys until he was 60. Thus, like Isaac and Rebekah, we should remain diligent and steadfast in this life. We should continue forward in trusting God. Though we should desire answers, we should be patient to wait upon the Lord, trusting in his wisdom, his judgments, and his will. Even if we must seek perseverance through a long drought or a long storm, we can trust in God to lead us through to this end. Likewise, they remind us of one more thing. Do not get discouraged if a prayer is not answered immediately. Isaac and Rebekah, they needed to wait just as Abraham and Sarah. As such, trust in God during such times. When you pray, it's all right to ask for something and to persist in prayers. For God is not incapable of placing it on our hearts to no longer pray for things. As such, if it is on your heart, then keep at it. Even if it gets hard, keep going. You don't know what God will do tomorrow or the next day or 20 years from now with the prayers you persevere in. So do not be like Esau, who was willing to give away. Instead, be like Isaac, and be like Rebekah in your perseverance, trusting in God all the while to help guide you on the path he has set for you.
Now, all of this leads us to the gospel. And of course it does, because it always does in some way. And in fact, I find a whole of the gospel in this section. Um, when it comes to, let's say, Isaac and um, Rebecca, and they're praying for children, for example. Guess what? Origins. Where does it begin? God. It doesn't begin anywhere else. It doesn't happen by happenstance or chance. It's by God. Our origins exist. And as such, we are created in his image. As such, we have dignity, worth, and self, um, self-wonder, in a way, because we are made in his image. And that's awesome, and it's wonderful. But we also notice something else, and that's in, you know, Jacob and Esau. Their relationship is already broken in the womb. <laughs> They're already fighting and having a battle right there in this poor woman who's struggling every day with this. Sin is real. The desire to get ahead. Willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead. Jacob clutching on to his brother's heel, even as a baby. Sin is persistent. Sin is willing to even do some things that we think is questionable, like swindling our brother out of a deal. (laughs) Um, You know, ultimately, the fall is relevant. And it's because of the fall that we deserve death. We deserve the judgment of all sin, which is death. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans. The wages of sin is death. So the question is, how are we redeemed? How do we no longer experience the fall? How are we led back to a place where we are no longer in a state of deserving guilt? Well, we read about it today with the kids. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find redemption. Through the work of God himself in the world, we find redemption. And as we read today from Romans, it's not a matter of your action. It's a matter of God's work. And all it requires of us is faith. Faith. And this redemption takes us and it it causes us to be faithful and it causes us to turn in repentance from our sins so that way we can follow after God as he deserves. We can start thinking about God the way that he deserves us to think about him. And this, this affectionate love that we have for God that swells up within us whenever we think about the greatness of our God. It makes me think of something. Yesterday, Chris and I went to a wedding for one of her friends in Wellsboro. And uh, there was a girl there who one time we had her over at our house to have a conversation and, and supper, I think it was. And we were talking to her about the gospel and we are talking about her about God. And I kid you not, she starts weeping, just bawling her eyes out right there. Now, she never professed to believe in God. But the truth is, is that what she was experiencing in that moment that caused her such affections to be riled up was God. She was experiencing God. And think about that, that that overflowing of affections that causes us to realize that this grace is so beautiful. It's wonderful. It's beyond us. We need to have it. It's irresistible if it comes on us. That's redemption, and that's what it looks like, and we have to keep going for it because we love it so much. A great affection that God provides for us. 
And ultimately, it leads to glory, though, if we are in Christ. In Christ, we receive an inheritance which is even greater than the birthright of Jacob and Esau. We receive an eternal inheritance where we have life eternal with our God, where we get to experience him without the guilt and without the shame and without all these things that we keep on our shoulders. Because, you know, even though we believe in Christ and even though we know what the Bible says, that if we have faith, then we no longer have guilt, we still struggle with that, don't we? Do you ever struggle with the fact that you've sinned and that even though you've believed for so long that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you still struggle with sin and it makes you really upset? We're getting to a place, we're going to be in a place where that guilt is no longer there because you'll realize for the first time what it really means that it's been telling us all along. Christ is enough. Imagine that. It's a wonderful thought. So as we continue forward and as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and as we continue to believe and as it continues to push us forward into the kingdom, let's not lose heart now. Instead, let's remain faithful because our God is worthy of our faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much because you are the God of all. You are the Lord, the maker. You are the creator. Not only the creator of the cosmos, you're also the creator of faith. You're the creator of the redemption that we find. And Lord, you could have left us to our own devices and we could always try to fly high enough, but we'd always find we can never fly high enough to get to you. Yet what did you do instead? You reached down to us. So that way we could be lifted up and we could be carried along and we could live now to the best of our abilities. And you would change us by your spirit and we would continue to walk in your spirit. So Lord, let us continue this. Give us strength for this. Because you are worthy of us. Let us not lose heart now, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.